We're going to continue this morning in this series from Isaiah chapter 55 in your Bibles. Isaiah 55, it's this incredible chapter in the middle of the Bible where God is just saying in such loving tones, He says, come. He says, come on, come to me. And it started, we saw a couple of weeks ago with that that Hebrew word where God is saying, hey, hey, and He's just calling through You know, the stuff that surrounds us, the stuff that we sometimes use to somehow insulate ourselves from God, we don't do it purposefully, it just gathers, doesn't it? And God calls through that, and he says, hey! And he he makes this universal invitation, he says, hey, come to me, all who are thirsty, all, everybody. If you're thirsty, he said, if you want this, I have it for you. This universal invitation, you don't have to be someone special, The condition of your life is irrelevant to the call. He just says, hey, come. Come on. Come. I'll take you just the way you are. A universal invitation. And it's a call to life. As Tony brought that excellent message last week, I listened to it online, and he brought that excellent message. It's a call to life. God says, come, I have life for you. Come, all who are thirsty. He says, come. Come. You have no money. Come. Buy food. Food that'll feed you. Drink that'll satisfy you. It's a call to life. And Tony also pointed out so well that it's a call based on the fulfillment of the covenant of David. That this is God's plan all along. We are not an afterthought. Our salvation isn't an afterthought from God, but it's something that he planned all along. This is a fulfillment of the covenant, the promise to David that, that God would bring a Savior into the world through his line and Over time he did, and now these many centuries since Christ has been here, the church has been built, and and, and here we are, in this day and age, believers, authentic belief in Christ, a move of the Holy Spirit, and we are a contemporary expression of what God was thinking when he made that promise to David so long ago. And we are part of the church. There's only one church, you know, right? There's only one church. There are different styles of being the church, and this is our style, but we're part of the church, the universal church around the world, and we're blessed to be a part of it. Well, today I want to continue the series by moving on to verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah. Let's read it together, church. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Let's just pray a minute here. Lord, we, we come to you because you know, it's your word. We need your spirit to come, your Holy Spirit to come. And to take this word and just reconstitute it in front of us to make it live again. We're not satisfied with reading the words on a page, Lord. We want to see them come to life by your spirit. Lord, there's no way that I could talk to all these different people here today and for any of this to make sense to all of them, but I know you can, and so I just invite your Holy Spirit to come and uh, use whatever words I've prepared, Lord, that will be helpful, and then cancel out the rest, and if you have a whole different plan, just come. It's your church, Lord. We're your sheep, and I pray that you'll just come and speak to each heart wherever wherever we are now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, so as we look at these verses from Isaiah chapter 55, before we're going to be able to understand them, we have to do something very important. We have to look at the larger setting in which we find them, right? The larger message, if we're going to be able to get hold of these words right. Now, that larger setting is something we call what? Context. Context. Apparently, this group over here knows it. You guys, I can't believe this. That's all I got. I'm going to try that again because I hammer this so much that the larger setting in which a passage is found is called? Context. Context. You've been taken out of context, and you've hated it, right? That's not what I meant. Yeah, but that's what you said I heard. But that's not what I meant. That's not how I meant it. Anybody? Yeah? Imagine how God feels when we take his stuff out of context, right? And this passage, bless you, this passage comes a couple, could come in a couple different ways. These, in other words, bless you again, these, these words cannot stand alone out of context. Imagine what you could do with them if you didn't, if you didn't respect the context. You could say something like this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Huh. And you could hear a very judgmental tone, couldn't you? If they just stood, and perhaps you have at some point. But Isaiah 55 starts with, hey, hey, you guys, come to me. Come, all who are thirsty. I have, I have water. I have food. I have life. Come to me. Come to me. And that's the context in which we find these verses. And so this is a loving call to us. This is a loving call out of sin and into the righteousness of God. It's a loving call out of our death and into his life. It's a call out of living at distance from God and into living near to God, in nearness to God. So if you're going to get the power of these words, you have to respect the larger context. And so what God's saying here, I believe, at this point, is he's saying, come to me, come to me. And what he's saying is, you know, if you're going to come then you have to be from somewhere, right? And, and you're coming, where are you from? You're coming out of sin. You're forsaking that so that we can come to him. That's where you're from. How many of you besides me and Kelly, you're not from here? <laughs> there are telltale signs in some of you that you're not from central Ohio. Just telltale signs, right? Yeah. It's kind of the way we talk. It's uh, maybe the way we react to certain cultural situations. It's the fact that we still think a buckeye is a plant. You know, these kind of things that give us away, maybe. Yeah, and so many of you are not from here. Some of you are not even from the United States. But So there's some, some journey, some set of circumstances you were brought here. And even though I'm not from here, I'm really glad I was called here. This is, my, this is my home. I mean, I've been here for 30 years, but I've, this is my, I don't know how long you have to be here to become a Buckeye. I've, nobody has given me an application or anything or ever invited me to a game. Uh, oh, sorry, Don, you did. Yeah, we went to a basketball game once. In 21 years of knowing each other, we went to one game. I love being here. I'm, 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 I'm here. I'm you. You're me. But to be here had to come from somewhere. And this is what God's saying. He's saying, I want you to come to me. But you've got to be from somewhere. You, you can't come to me and, and bring all that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And he says, but I want you to come to me. And I want to help you 
to forsake all of that. So in the spirit of that context of coming to the Lord, I want you to notice a few words in these verses. First, notice the word while. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. That sounds urgent, doesn't it? That sounds a little bit scary. It sounds time sensitive, yeah? Call on while. That's, a, that's a, something, you're having a duration of time. There's an attachment of time to this call. Call on him. Come to him. Call him while he's near. Seek him while he may be found. That word while. Get them while they're hot, right? Because some period of time is going to pass and they're not going to be hot anymore. And so that's how we use that word. And so I think you have to ask a question. Well, is God planning to retract his offer of salvation? Is God planning to... I mean, seek the Lord while he may be found. It indicates that he, maybe he won't be able to be found. Call him while he's near. Maybe he won't be near at some point. Is God planning to retract his offer of salvation? I think the answer is yes and no. I think the answer is yes, that there's going to come a trumpet call from God, and the time for responding will be over. That at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the element of when that declaration was made will make all the difference. But I think the answer is also no, that God is not going to retract his offer of salvation between now and then. But don't get too comfortable. I hope you're not using that as some kind of a justification for saying, well, I'll get around to this. Because while God may not be retracting his offer of salvation, have you noticed this about your life? Have you noticed that there are seasons when you seem more open to the move of God than others? There are times in your life when it's like, that's what you're all about, and you're open to it. And then there are seasons when that passes. Have you noticed this, or is it just me? And there are even seasons when you get a little cold. Is it just me? Is there anybody else? So I think that while I don't believe God is ever going to retract his offer of salvation, you've got to respect the fact that there are some times in your life you're open to it, And there are some times in your life that the enemy is successful in coming in and deceiving you and clouding the message and fooling around with things in such a way that you go, yeah, I'm not so much about that anymore. So seek the Lord while he may be found, is what this word is. Call on him while he's near, while you're being stirred. Call to him. Does that make sense? Good answer. Next, notice the word forsake. He says, let the wicked man forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Forsake. The Hebrew on this word is two things. It means to abandon, which means makes sense. Forsake it, abandon it, leave it. Abandon ship. That's when you, you realize the ship can do you no good anymore, right? You're over the side. In fact, the ship can hurt you, so you have to abandon it. And this is what he's saying. Abandon that life. It can't do you any good anymore. In fact, it'll hurt you. You have to abandon that. But the other other definition for this Hebrew word is to set free. To set free. So set free the foundation of sin. Set it free. Let it go. It's not helping you. It's not helping you anymore. Now, what I'd like to do is for you to take those two definitions of of this word forsake. Take those two definitions and let's apply them to Jesus' words in the New Testament. When Jesus said, what? I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. 
So let's apply those two definitions, believers. If you know Christ as your Savior, the promise of Jesus, he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So he's never going to abandon you. That's one word. He's never going to abandon you, ever. Ever. Even when you want him to. Come on. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know, you're in, then you go back out. And you go back out. Remember how much easier it used to be to sin and go back out before you knew Christ? Because you didn't care. Remember? And you go back out. He's not going to abandon you. And I'm telling you, he's a lot worse than Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder. I'll tell you what. He's, because he's loving you. And that conviction that you feel is him calling you back. It's calling you back. It's not guilt. It's not condemnation. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your faith is in Christ, and this is going to blow your mind. But even when you go back out, even when you go back out, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are... Are you giving license to sin? Turns out you don't need a license to sin. Okay? I don't even know where to get one. All right? And I'm saying absolutely not. I'm saying what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross is so secure, so solid, that if your faith is in him, that when the devil fools you and the devil tricks you and you go back out, Jesus has not abandoned you. Or nor will he set you free. Right? You say, well, no, he'll set you free from sin, but he won't set you free from himself. The Bible says that once you come to Christ, if you authentically come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, there's no getting out of it. You're done. You're hooked. Some of you are trying not to believe, right? Good luck with that. He loves you too much to let that continue. He won't set you free. He will never leave you or forsake you. But the Bible says here, if we want to come to God, we have to forsake what? Both our way and our thoughts. Our way... And our thoughts. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about how, how many of your ways proceed from your thoughts. Right? The Bible says in Proverbs, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As you entertain thoughts and develop a perspective of yourself, as you, as you accept that perspective, that's how you're going to act. Your actions start inside. It's always an inside job, right? Always starts on the inside. And so you, you develop a set of thoughts. You can take the truth of God, or you can take the lie of the enemy. And whatever it is that you choose as your thoughts, as your beliefs, as your perspective, will declare how it is you act from there. Does that make sense? The Bible says in James chapter 1 that the process of temptation goes like this. It says, each, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire... He is dragged away and enticed. That, Mike, it's still in there, isn't it? Thank God, it's still that evil desire. I mean, it's not what it used to be, right? But it's still there. And, and, it, and it stirs up every now and then. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You don't want it, but it stirs up. And I think one of the things that we do wrong is we attribute that to the devil. I'm being attacked by the devil. I think we give him way too much credit. I think we're just being stirred by our own evil desire that hasn't been redeemed and remedied yet. And, and we give him way too much credit. I'm under attack of the enemy. I'm under temptation. You're not under attack of the enemy. That's your own evil desire that is still being sanctified by God. I, in fact, we learned in that last battle series, listen, that we can take the devil. Jesus will take the devil for us. 
That would be the easier part, is to just ask Jesus to come and take out the devil, right? We see that that works. Here's how I view the devil. Because, so, so this temptation, that's an inside thing. But the enemy is an external thing. And here's, here's how I believe the Lord has given me a way of looking at the devil. Then the devil comes at us in attack, he's riding a bicycle. And I'm in the bushes with a baseball bat. Who's going to win that one? Right between the eyes, because it's external. Knock him off the bike in the name of Jesus. Now, I know I'm, I'm minimizing the reality of that, but, but I just want to point out, attack of the enemy is external. Jesus will take it if we'll have faith. Temptation is internal. So how is it that we forsake this, this way by bringing our thoughts into conformity with the word of God? The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. You're like, okay, I'd love. How do I do that, right? Yeah. What does it say next? It says, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Because your thoughts will determine your actions. It's always that way. It's always that way. So why do we read our Bibles every day? Renew our minds. Renew our minds. Why do I have the discipline of reading the Bible every day? Renew our minds. Renew our minds. How many of you, like me, have some days you read your Bible and you go, Lord, that rocked, thank you. How many of you, like me, have days where you read the Bible and go, that was really routine, maybe even mundane? (laughs) But we do it. We do it. We do it. We do it. Because it transforms our mind. Good word. Notice the phrase next, then, turn to the Lord. Let him turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Turn. I love this phrase. Turn to the Lord. This is the first act in coming. Some of you are beginning to hear that stirring from the Lord, saying, come to me. I want you close. How do I get there? You begin by turning. You turn to the Lord. Now, here's what you've got to get. You turn to the Lord wherever you are. Right wherever you are. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to change anything. Turn to the Lord from wherever you are. You say, you don't understand, Tom. I'm deep into my addiction. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. You say, I'm I'm up to my neck in my own vomit. Turn to the Lord. Before it's over your head, right? (laughs) Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. This is the essential beginning act of coming to the Lord, is turning to Him. And just turn away from the life you're living Just turn away from it and look for the face of the Lord somewhere. Because as we've seen before in the scriptures, this is what it means to repent. Repent means to turn. So we're living in sin. We're caught up in the sin. We want to get out of the sin. How do I do that? By hunkering down and trying harder? Hadn't worked for anybody so far. By turning to the Lord. Repenting. Repenting. Start. Let him draw you out. Acts 3.19. I love this verse. It says, repent then, and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Isn't that what you want? This is the heart of God, is to refresh us with his presence. Notice the word mercy. It says, uh, if we turn to the Lord, he'll have mercy on us. What, he'll have judgment on you? He'll tell you everything you already know? (laughs) That's what judgment is, isn't it? 
you know, oh, crap, he knows, right? That's what judgment is. It's telling you what you already know. But it's, that's not what it says. He'll have mercy. He will extend mercy to us, Bill. That's good news for you and me. More for you than me, but I mean, I'm just saying, right? <laughs> it's good news that he, he's showing us mercy. That's the heart of the Lord. At the center of the invitation of Isaiah 55 and God's call to come is, is mercy. Mercy. The very core of it. Notice, notice what he says next, that he'll freely pardon if we'll come. Got it? God is the only one who has authority to offer this pardon, right? How many of you like me have sinned? The rest of you are lying right now. If your hand's not up, you're lying. You're sinning right now. Sheesh. Only God has the, has the authority to offer the pardon. And the Bible says if we turn to him, come to him, then he'll show us mercy and he will freely pardon. Reluctantly pardon? Freely pardon. This is so hard for so many Americans to get their head around. We are culturally conditioned not to believe this. Why? Because in our great country, which has been built on the backs of sacrifice and hard work, we have this thing we call Independence Day, right? Which as a culture, as a nation, as a political entity, is so important to us, of course. And it's the basis of our freedom. But it doesn't always go well with the gospel of Jesus. Because we, we see ourselves in America as these pioneers who have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. By golly, right? And along come Jesus and says, I, have, I want to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And you say, how much? Probably got it. I'm an American. Not I'll get it. Right? And he says, no, 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 your money's not good here. You've got to let me do this for you. And they start to break down, don't they? He says, I'll, I'll freely pardon Freely pardon. And I see people all the time, Christians trying to live both worlds. Jesus Christ, yes, I believe in him, and I'm paying him back as hard as I can. <laughs> Seriously? You're going to pay him back for his shed blood? What do you got? What do I have? Prepare to groan. I'm going to give you a quick theology lesson. Two views of the atonement. What's the atonement, you ask? Okay, that might be a new word to some of you guys. It's a word used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It talks about the process that God uses to, um, to uh, redeem a broken relationship. So we have a broken relationship somehow with God. And it's the process that God uses one way in the Old Testament, by the blood of lambs, and in the New Testament by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So that's what atonement means. It's that process, that mechanism that God sets up so that we can be right with God again. Okay? And I want to give you a quick theology lesson here. We've, we've touched this ransom thing before, but I want to do it a little bit more deeply today because of the way it impacts your understanding of this chapter. And on the left, you'll see there's the word substitutionary. And the substitutionary atonement is a way of looking at what Jesus Christ did for us, that he was our substitute. That's why it's called that. So that, you know, 
Sarita, it should be you, right, on the cross. It should be me. We're not, we're not denying that. The wages of sin is death. I deserve to die. But Jesus took my place. Have you heard this? Okay, and it's true. Substitutionary atonement. But what I want to show you is historically how this has played out in our culture. So that today, at the core of this substitutionary atonement is an understanding that we are fearful sinners in the hands of an angry God. Isn't this how this goes? I mean, we're fearful sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so the substitutionary atonement depends on our understanding of this. That God is angry, something must be done, Jesus is our substitute. Now, the phrase, sinners in the hands of an angry God, is not my own. As many of you know, it was a famous sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. Some of you were there, and you remember. (laughs) And it characterizes our walk with God as we're we're walking on a cheesecloth stretched over the fires of hell and a few missteps, and we're over the side. Okay? It's very fragile in its sense. And... uh, It depends on our believing that God is disappointed in our performance. That, Mike, you haven't done everything God has expected you to do, and he's disappointed. It also depends, uh, or it also understands God as being kind of obligated to redeem us. So we've screwed up, God's disappointed, and he kind of goes, well, I made the darn things, I better do something with them now. I better offer a remedy. You know? Didn't work out quite the way I had in mind, but i got to fix this. And, uh, and it assumes a capacity on our part that we're capable of pleasing God. That if I just worked at it harder, Mike, I could be okay. I could be perfect with God. I mean, it, otherwise, how could God be disappointed in us, right? I mean, it would be unjust for God to be disappointed in me if he hadn't also written into my system the ability to be perfect. Why could he be disappointed in me if he knows I can't do it? That's not just. And so it assumes that we have a capacity. And it basically says that because we've disappointed God in our behavior, that Jesus took the bullet for us. That we should be in front of the firing squad. Jesus took the bullet for us. There's, um, there's good Bible for it. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's plenty of good Bible for this. Um, This is the substitutionary atonement. This is the majority viewpoint in the church in general, capital C. This is the majority viewpoint of the way that the, the atonement is really talked about. And the reason I think that that's the majority viewpoint is because it's good for business. It's good for business. It's good for church business to keep people dependent on the church, on the church, on somebody in the church in order to be keeping right with God and that their salvation is a pretty fragile thing. I think it's good for business. Ransom theory, on the other side, by contrast, says that we are grateful captives in the arms of a mighty God. So that we're born into prison, right? We're born into a condition called sin. We're born into a prison cell. And that because God has come through His Son, Jesus Christ, and has ransomed us, has done whatever was necessary to get us out of prison, 
then we are not fearful sinners uh, in the hands of a living, uh, angry God, but we're grateful captives. We're grateful captives. We were captives, and now the Bible says we're captives to Christ. He's purchased us, and he made a way for us to get out. It says that God is sympathetic to our condition. Not that he's disappointed in our performance. It's like he sees Pat was born from a generation of sinners, well-meaning people, but everybody who ever lived before you was a sinner, so you didn't have a chance. You were born into a condition of sin. God is sympathetic to that. The ransom theory says God is eager to rescue us. That he's not, ah, I better do something. But he goes, i got to get these kids out. i got to go get my children. i got to get them. The ransom theory assumes an inability, assumes that we don't know how to get ourselves out of the sinful condition, or else we would have, right? Assumes that we need someone to come and rescue us. We're behind them in the enemy lines, and we're caught. And it assumes that we don't have the ability to get ourselves out. And it says that Jesus conquered Satan for us. That Jesus on the cross conquered Satan and opened the door to our cell. This is the ransom theory. And of course we could talk about this for hours just trying to give you the highlights. There's Bible for it. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Right. So the idea here is that Jesus came, and there are many other references on both sides of these to support these particular viewpoints of... uh, of the atonement and what it even means to be a Christian. Now, I should also tell you that, obviously, then, the one on the right is the minority viewpoint. It's the minority viewpoint. And it's the one that I believe. And it's the one that I teach. Ask me why. Because I believe it's true. I believe it's true. I believe there's truth, of course, to the substitutionary atonement. Of course, Jesus was our substitute. But I believe that if, you, if you're wanting to know what the essence of the atonement was, if you're wanting to know what the essence of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was, it was to come as a ransom to open our prison cells. And no matter how clean I can keep my cell, no matter how good I can get at being a Christian and clean up my prison cell, I'm still in prison until Jesus comes and lets me out. I believe it's true. And I also believe it's the more helpful of the two viewpoints. Because if you think about the kind of Christian that results from the left-hand column, they're insecure, their salvation is fragile, they tend to be judgmental and condemning, saying, man, you really screwed up, you better get it right. God's angry with you. They're constantly working this message in their mind, I suck at this, I suck at this, I suck at this. Sucketh at this. Hello? What do you get on the right side? I've been set free. Jesus Christ loved me so much that he came and he conquered Satan for me and he opened my prison door and I'm out. Oh, glory to God. Come on. Go Pentecostal on you. 
Guess which end of the church believes in the ransom theory? You got the evangelicals believing in substitutionary atonement. You got the Pentecostals believing in the ransom theory. Which one's more excited than the other? Hello? Guess which understanding of the atonement is older by 15 centuries? The ransom theory. It's what the original church believed. This second one wasn't developed until the Reformation when we had to figure out how to keep people dependent on the church. And that's another reason that I preach the ransom theory, although it's the minority viewpoint, is because, and even though it's bad for business, I'm not in a business. I'm not trying to build a big church here. I'm not trying to build a business. I'm trying to tell you the truth so that you can be free. And if you preach this ransom theory over here, you might just wake up some Sunday morning and go, you know, I like going to that church, but I think God wants us to stay home and have sausage. (laughs) And that's not good for business. And I'm telling you right now, believers, you're free to stay home and have sausage in the name of Jesus. bacon are you hearing me you hear when believers get set free how that's bad for church business but good for the church good for the witness of jesus christ in the world yeah so that's why i preach it all right this call from isaiah 55 is conditioned by the word come let the wicked forsake his way come on he says come on come on come on come you got to be from there come to me God wants to do something to to make you from there so that now you're here. And this is what Jesus has done for us. The best way I could think of to illustrate this in closing is with my dog, Pilot. Now, many, many of you have been to our farm and you know Pilot. Some of you have walked our farm to pray and Pilot has shown you the way. You've been to our parties. Some of you are hayrides and stuff. You know Pilot. Pilot's a great dog. He's a dog we rescued from the newspaper. And uh, this lady said, I can't do a thing with him. He just needed to come to the farm. He's a great dog. And uh, he barks, but he doesn't bite. Unless you're a bad guy, then he'll rip you to shreds. So <laughs> in case you're here, you're don't let his smile fool you when you come out, all right? <laughs> He's a great dog. And... Uh, But he has this one really bad habit. Because it's in his nature to have this habit. And in his nature, what Pilate does every so often is he goes and he finds a pile of the stinkiest possible thing. And he rolls in it, man. Yeah, it's manure in the barnyard maybe or some dead possum that's been out there for three months. And he finds it. And I see him out in the field and he's just like... And when I see him rolling in it, I say, Pilot, come. He's like, I wouldn't do nothing. (laughs) But then he gets about 10 feet from me, and I know he's been doing something. Because he stinks. I mean, he stinks bad. He's not coming back in the house that way. Because if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? (laughs) He's not coming back in the house that way. 
And in order for him to get back in the house after he has been doing what in his dog nature to do, something has to happen. That's he has to be washed. You've got to be washed. He's not coming back in. He can't. He doesn't belong in smelling like that. It doesn't work. And the thing about Pilate is he can't wash himself. He doesn't know how to work the faucet. <laughs> and so I bring him up and I say, come on. He's like, hose him down, put soap on him. He's got this special soap we mix up with all kinds of goop in it and hose him down, spread him down. He runs around after that. Wow, cool, cool. And then he can come back in. He can come back in. What does he want to come in for? Food, shelter, company of the people he loves, television. <laughs> He's a weird dog. He can't come back in until he lets his master wash him, and he can't wash himself. You hearing me? You want to be in the Father's house? You've got to let him wash you. You've got to be from there. You can't wash yourself. Some people say, I'm just going to try and manage my behaviors long enough so the stink wears off. <laughs> Forget it. You don't have that kind of time. All right? You've got to let him wash you. Say, wash me, Lord. Wash me, Lord. I'm here, Lord. Some of you are saying... Why would you do that? Your dog, he, you mean he keeps doing it? Yeah, every once in a while. Just come up stinking like the devil, you know? And why would you keep, why would I keep washing him? Because I love him. He's my dog. He loves me. And every once in a while, his nature takes over. So that he's got to have another washing. Hello? So you have two choices. If you've never come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, the call is on you. Come. Come, he'll wash you. He's, he's got it all taken care of. All you got to do is just answer the call to come. I want to be washed. Your other choice this morning is if you already come, you need to celebrate that, right? Yeah. You're a son and daughter of the living God living in the big house, right? Okay, Father, as we bow now in your name, we invite you to come and fulfill this promise that you've given us. We love you, Lord, and we're not always even sure we know exactly what that means, but we're pretty excited about you and who you are and who you say you want to be to us. And so I just pray for every person here. I thank you for this church, Lord. It's just a church of a lot of, you know, broken people, a lot of broken pottery that needs to be put back together by your hands. And I thank you that there's a church like that. And I thank you that you have brought all these people, every one of them, and some who are looking pretty good these days and some who are still just really trying to begin. But I pray equally for every one of them. The power of the Lord come out on this place now. As we take just a few minutes to respond to you, hear this stirring in our hearts and try to figure out how to say yes to you. I just pray the power and move of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it would be fantastic if we could have some prayer ministry people come up and just make yourself available to pray with people. Maybe you're a person who does want to come to Jesus today. They don't know what to do. Maybe you're just a person who has something else going on in your life that you'd like prayer for anything. It wouldn't matter. It doesn't have to be anything we're talking about. You just say, would, would somebody just pray for me? That's what these people are up here for. So maybe we could stand, church, and get some more prayer ministry people up. And You can always just come up here. You know how, many of you know how it is at the vineyard. You're just free to work out 
your next step.